Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of our Digital Dialogue series, where we're learning from some amazing thinkers, organizers, and activists all about land and our relationships to land, as well as issues around food sovereignty, indigenous land rematriation, land back, and relational accountability. I'm Sarah Rotz, and today, Taryn Giacomini, Ayla Fenton, and I talk with Dr. Emily Eaton and Amy Sisquesis from the Treaty Land Sharing Network. Emily is an associate professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Regina, and Amy is Cree with Métis Lineage, who is an artist and storyteller and is the director of public education with the Office of the Treaty Commissioner. In this episode, we're going to learn about the important work of the Treaty Land Sharing Network, which is a group of farmers, ranchers, and other landholders who have come together to begin the crucial work of honoring treaties. The network connects farmers and other landholders with First Nations and Métis people needing safe access to land to practice their way of life. We really hope you enjoy the conversation. Maybe we can start with Amy and then pop over to Emily. For sure, yeah. Well, um, I'm from the Beardies and Okamasis Cree Nation, which is in Treaty 6 territory. Um, my tribe is the Willow Cree. Um, I identify as Nehiwak and Michif, so I am Cree with Métis lineage. Um, my, I work for the Office of the Treaty Commissioner, and I am the Director of Public Education, and that is how I came into contact with uh, the Treaty Land Sharing Network. And so I've been um, working alongside them for about a year and a half now, I think, um, maybe, maybe longer, I'm not too sure, um, but yeah. That is a little bit about my what I do. Um, like public education is um, overseeing um, not only the province of Saskatchewan because of COVID, we've been able to branch out virtually. So a lot of our our, our programs have um, been expanding to other um, provinces. And so what we do is we provide um, education and awareness about uh, the treaties, um, Indigenous treaty partners, um, reconciliation. And so a lot of what I do is um, ensure that the public is aware and that they have um, access to information and resources about treaties and Indigenous treaty partners and reconciliation. Um, I'm also um, a Métis jigger. I am a part of uh, the longest serving um, Indigenous square dance group. Um, I inherited the role of general manager from my, um, my Kukum and Wisham, which is Cree for grandmother and grandfather. Um, and so I've been doing that now for about 32 years I've been dancing, um, but I've been general manager now for about five years. Um, and so that's a little bit about me. Um, I guess maybe I'll also share is that um, I did, I, I am um, an individual that grew up on reserve. For 27 years of my life, I did live on reserve um, and I moved to an urban setting um, about eight years ago. And so I did spend a lot of my life on the land and um, have, understood that, you know, the, that over time as Indigenous people, there becomes this disconnect to land when you're often away from it. Um, and especially in urban settings, right, where the only access to land you have is parks or your backyard and such. So, um, you know, I think that that helps to shape kind of my lens and understanding, you know, what it's like to have access to land and then not to have access to land. And not only in the terms of moving from reserve to urban, but also the fact that of living on a reserve and living under the constraints of the Indian Act, 
um, has also impacted my my access to land, um, which I'm sure we can get into a little bit more as we we dive more into the conver the, the questions. Hi everyone. <laughs> uh, my name's Emily Eaton. Um, I I actually don't know as much as I should about my ancestors. Um, strange thing. Um, but I think on my mom's side, um, I don't know, <laughs> they've been here for a few generations. Um, mostly, well, at some point, anyhow, at some point, I think my mom's dad came as a boy from France. Um, but also on that side, we have mixed British Isles ancestry. I'm not sure exactly from where. Um, and then on my dad's side, again, like mixed British Isles. That's as much as I know, really, which is very odd. Um, and uh, yeah, I live, I grew up in Saskatoon, Treaty 6. I now live in Regina um, in Treaty 4 territory. I am also a prof at the University of Regina. And so most of my interest in this stuff is actually comes more from an academic place, I guess. Um, and I earlier on in my sort of academic studies, um, I became really interested in land reform. Um, and it's always kind of the, at the time I was in Guatemala for a semester abroad, and there was a lot of discussion about land reform and it's always been um, a big question of mine why uh, we talk about land reform in places like Guatemala, but nobody ever talks about that in Canada. So even in your introductions, how you talked about, you know, the question of land. Um, and I find it interesting just that the, the terminology around that is so different. And I think in some ways with more decolonizing lenses, maybe we're going to move towards more stronger language. Um, but I think, yeah, um, that trajectory, I guess I was mostly interested in agriculture um, earlier on in my sort of academic life. And now my research is more around um, fossil fuels, energy transition. Um, and I try to think a lot about how treaty implementation fits into that in a just transition. So I'm less directly involved in sort of land conversations, except that through this work with the Treaty Land Sharing Network, um, which is sort of volunteer service, I guess, type work, um, I've kind of re-entered <laughs> uh, those questions, I guess, as well. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. It's so nice to meet you. Um, so why don't we, why don't we have Ayla? Um, are you prepared, Ayla, to ask the first question? Is that okay? Yeah, sure thing. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. So we just wanted to start off with, with talking about uh, relationships to land and, and what that means to you. So uh, we're just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about your relationship to the land and, and maybe how or uh, how or if it has changed over time since you started the Treaty Land Sharing Network? Yeah, I guess for me, what has changed, I guess, is that what is, wait, I, I put all the questions on words so that if I forgot, <laughs> I could quickly pull it up and read it really quick. 
Okay. Well, my relationship to land, I think, over time, like with the Treaty Land Sharing Network, um, has changed because, like I mentioned, when you move to an urban setting, you don't always have access to land. And so when I do have access to land, it's when I go back home to my community. And I'm thankful that it's not very far away. It's only about 45 minutes um, north. But, you know, when you get so busy in your in your in your your job and your family you don't always have that time and through the treaty land sharing network and through my role which is you know promoting and implementing treaty i've been able to access land again in a space that's safe um, and isn't just within my own home community and so that for me has um, made me feel like i'm being able to access my inherent rights which is to be able to have that access to land in a safe space, um, which is what the treaties were about, right? Was to be able to have, to share the land. Um, you know, indigenous people are, you know, the original caretakers and stewards of the land. And so we knew that there was no ownership of the land. And so through treaties had offered to share, but only to the depth of the plow because we wanted to be able to have that, um, that, um, ecology of the land remain in place because we didn't want to disrupt what was underneath we knew there was resources and minerals right and all of that plays a part in the land um, being able to maintain itself for generation after generation and so what instead took place is that the indian act happened and there was this breach of treaty and that is where the traditional ways in which the land were cared for and we often talk about it as indigenous people but when we start to talk about rematriation, then we're able to start to focus on who actually really was the original caretakers of the land. And it wasn't just Indigenous people, it was Indigenous women. And Indigenous women were the ones that did all the gathering of medicines. And Indigenous women were the ones that when, after successful hunts, you know, the men didn't carry that, that, that game back to the camp, the woman went out and collected it. They took it apart and brought it back to be um, harvested. So I think that when we talk about, you know, rematriation, it's it's going back to understanding who were who was the traditional caretakers of the land. And it's also honoring disruptions that took place because of the Indian Act. Um, you know, because we knew we of because of the reserve system, um, the pass and permit system, but also the fact that Indigenous women aren't even identified as human beings in the Indian Act and the property of a man. And the fact that Indigenous women were forcibly removed from their communities when they married a man who wasn't from their tribe. Um, and traditionally, men left their tribe and they joined the woman's tribe. And women, they stayed in their tribe from birth till death. And we had grandmother societies so you had a woman who was born into the tribe and seen that tribe and the developments of it throughout her lifetime. So she was the best person to advise on that. So I think for me, what I've seen with the Treaty Land Sharing Network, because it's, it's um, a collective that's led by women, I see it as one of the largest movements of rematriation because it's women taking back their their rightful role as traditional stewards of the land, as those traditional caretakers, the ones who have those ceremonies about the land and, and all the medicines and such that are there. So for me, I think what's changed is that I've been able to access land the way I should have, um, the way treaties were meant to be, 
and I know we're just beginning that work, but I think that for me, it's just, it's, it's very heartwarming. It's, um, it gives me hope and to, to know that you can go to somebody's, to a, an individual who understands that they don't own the land, they hold title to it and that they need to share it based on those principles of treaty which was to be able to share the land, give people access so that people could maintain their own, their own culture and worldview and subsistence is a part of that. And that's, you know, having that access to land. So for me, I think I feel that we're on the way to starting to implement treaty. And I'm sure I probably went off in all kinds of different ways with that answer, but I hope that's kind of gives you some of what I feel about how having access, how being a part of the Treaty Land Sharing Network has impacted me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, maybe I'll let I'll let Emily go first, and then I I do have a follow up question, but I'll let Emily tackle the first part of the question first. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's nice to see you again, Amy. Sorry, <laughs> it's been a while since. <laughs> nice to hear you talking. Um, yeah, so uh, I already mentioned that I grew up in a pretty urban context um, our, um, and not from a farming family, despite that, um, you know, a lot of people have that, a lot of settlers have that ancestry in Saskatchewan. Um, and I think my relationship to land um, growing up was probably, you know, the most significant part of that, I think, was every summer we went um, north in the province to the boreal forest and we went on canoe trips. And at that time you could drink the water unfiltered out of the lakes. Um, and we encountered like a lot of um, indigenous wild rice harvesters in northern Saskatchewan. It was really, um, I just remember like being a young child and thinking that this was a totally different world than um, the more urban southern context that I had that I was living in. Um, and I don't have like a very significant, I would say, relationship to land. Um, right now, I like to be there are there's a really interesting appreciation, I think, of like the prairies when I moved to Regina. Um, well, when I lived in Saskatoon, um, the area around Saskatoon is very much cultivated um, and there isn't much natural prairie um, in the vicinity of Saskatoon. And I think I really didn't, despite having grown up there, um, I left when I was 21 for Ontario. Um, I don't think I really understood or knew what native prairie was until I returned um, in 2009 to Regina and then I started to learn uh, more about native prairie and um, have a better appreciation for it. I did some work in oil and gas producing communities in the province and it was really interesting just how significant um, preserving native prairie is, for example, for ranchers, um, for conservationists, um, in those trips to those communities, there were fairly few Indigenous people that um, I met with, but certainly since then I've also 
come to understand how important native prairie is to indigenous communities as well. So that's like something that I guess I've learned along the way. And um, in terms of the treaty land sharing network and doing that work, I think I'll just return to what I said before about um, a curiosity I always had and that seemed strange to me um, in when in 2000 and what was that 2000 I think um, when I was in Guatemala it was only four years I guess after the peace accords had been signed and there was all of this talk about land reform and there's a fairly significant indigenous population percentage of the population in Guatemala and that land reform was about you know, redistributing land from large landholders, but also um, repatriation, or I guess you could say rematriation um, to Indigenous communities. And it always, I always had that question doing that, you know, being in Guatemala and being immersed in that field of study about why it was that we didn't talk about those things at the time, at least, or it wasn't on my radar um, in Canada, or in so-called Canada. Um, and so I think one thing that's changed in terms of the last few years that I've been involved with the Treaty Land Sharing Network is just um, becoming more familiar with um, more Indigenous writers who write about treaty and about the true intent and spirit of treaty, which I think really does allow for um, a different understanding of land, um, well, you could say access, um, but certainly not like potentially overlapping um, jurisdiction, for example, um, around land, overlapping land uses, um, sharing in that regard. Like, I think it's, it's fairly easy in some sense. Sharing is such a word that is common um, to us from, the time when we're very young, but I think coming to understand what sharing, what the potential um, actual practices look like in sharing um, is something that's deepened over time. So does that, and even I guess reflecting on sort of, we've been in the treaty land sharing network also trying to reflect on like our relationship to the land back movement. Um, and so thinking about, um, does sharing mean land back? Um, does it mean that there can be overlapping land uses, um, overlapping and shared jurisdiction? All of those things are, are things that we've been exploring through the Treaty Land Sharing Network. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're exploring those things maybe more through the organizing committee than through um, the members who have their land in the network so far, um, because I think it is a lot of work for most farmers to go from um, feeling that they own the land um, and have exclusive use of that land to then considering those like quite nascent conversations about, um, well, nascent conversations among settlers anyways, about um, yeah, hard, overlapping uses, jurisdiction, that type of thing. Yeah, that's actually a really good segue into my follow-up question, um, because we wanted to ask you a little bit about 
about the word, the concept of rematriation um, and how you understand that concept, if it's, if it's a word or, or um, a term that you, that you use. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll start with Amy again. If you could talk a little bit about how, how you understand the concept of rematriation, what it means to you, uh, and then also how that then connects to your work in the treaty land sharing network. For me, um, matriation, uh, rematriation means the, you know, woman taking back that role. Um, for me, as you know, a Cree woman who's from Treaty Six territory, and who's, you know, has to live under, you know, the Indian Act. Um, for me, it's rematriation means that I'm taking back a role that was denied from me because of that government policy. Um, it allows for, you know, a system that's been conducting itself for over 150 years as paternal and misogynistic when Indigenous people in our tribes, we, we held women up in high regard. Um, women are, you know, a portal between the spirit world and the physical world. And so women were seen as having certain ceremonies and teachings that men didn't have because women carried, you know, that portal. They were a vessel to bring life into this world from that spirit world. And so there was so much, you know, um, importance on that role. And as I mentioned earlier with grandmother societies. And so when we talk about rematriation, it's, there's so many levels of it, you know, that, that it involves, it involves, you know, the, the physical part, right, you know, accessing land again, um, and being those, those original stewards again. That's not to say that men can't pick and gather medicines, of course they can, but the teachings associated with the gathering of those medicines and the ceremonies came from women. And so it's allowing women to be able to assert that role again um, in, a, in a society, in a system that is male dominated. Um, it's allowing, you know, women that the idea that they do have a voice and that their voice matters, um, that they are leaders um, and that they carry with them the stories of their people and their, their histories are written in within the, the ceremonies that they practice, right? Um, and so for me, re rematriation isn't only just physical, right? Having that, that access back to the land again, but it's also the idea of knowing that women were held in that high regard and that we're going back to a place where we do honor them again in that role. And it isn't just speaking about, you know, Indigenous women. When we, when we talk about being Indigenous, we have to understand that it's, you're Indigenous to that land. You see, I'm Indigenous because I live in Treaty 6 territory and I'm Indigenous to this land. And I'll always be Indigenous, right? But if I were to go to, say, Guatemala, I can't go there and say I'm Indigenous because I'm not Indigenous to that land. However, I'm Nehiawak, I'm Cree. And so that even like the concepts of being indigenous and all of that rematriation, it people often think it's some rematriation is something that only belongs to indigenous women. It belongs to all women because you know a lot of people who come here as settlers, as European settlers, they assimilated too. 
when they got off those boats. It was into a British ideology. And so those women were indigenous to their own territories, whether they came from the Ukraine, you know, or from Scotland. And they had their own, their own ceremonies and they had their own um, stories, their own songs, their own prayers, things that they did that were indigenous to the land there that was their own um, caretakers of the land, their own stewardship to the land. And through that assimilation process, when coming here, they had to give that up. And when we look at a lot of how women have been treated in history, when we look at it from, um, you know, our, our brothers and sisters south of the border, you know, looking at how women were persecuted as, as witches, those were actually medicine women that came from European countries. Um, and so we have to understand that those, these people who are being identified as, you know, non-Indigenous white settlers are also Indigenous somewhere to their land. And they have stories too. And so when we talk about rematriation and, and the land, and it's not just for Indigenous women who are Indigenous to the territories where it's happening, it's for all women. Because when you look at what's happening, if you looked at like the, the protests and the things that were happening in the 90s and earlier, you've seen men at the forefront. You know, you look at a lot of the imagery of Oka, right? You see a lot of men in the forefront um, individually standing there against another man, you know? So you have two different cultures facing off. But when you look at these modern protests that are happening currently, like, you know, um, <clears throat> with Standing Rock and Wet'suwet'en, you see women at the forefront of those protests because rematriation is already happening. And you see women linking arms with each other. They're not standing there individually. They're linking arms and locking together and standing there because that is rematriation. It's women who come together and they do what's right for, for the land, for people, for, for everyone. And so um, I think it's more than just, it's more than just a physical, um, it's, it's everything, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's mental. Um, and I think um, we're just beginning to see how powerful that, that can be. You know, it took over 150 years for us in this territory, in treaty territory, but we're looking at over 500 years, right? Of, um, of that persecution of women and a dismantlement of what in Turtle Island was taking place. But also I think even farther back in history on um, other continents, right? You know, the persecutions that were happening to women. Whereas we, we all have, you know, this united cause of having a voice and understanding that we are powerful. And that's, I think, all I have to share about that for now. I think I went off again, but I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> I really did. That was beautifully put, Amy. Thank you. Um, so Emily, would you like to share a little bit also about uh, about rematriation, how you understand that that word and how it links to the work with the with the network? Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, I would say I, I should say I sometimes have a hard time knowing how to answer these questions because there's like the work that I do with the treaty land sharing network. And then there's also my more academic work and I'm not sure where, how and where to, 
the boundaries end and begin and what to talk about. But um, I think for the TLSN, um, it hasn't really been a word that has been on our radar particularly. Um, and I think, you know, there's different, of course, contexts across um, so-called Canada. And I think working in the numbered treaties, um, we've sort of started with the idea that farming um, by settlers is a practice that, um, you know, was, as, as Amy already talked about in the treaties, was an agreement to share land for that land use. Now, not in the way that it has played out. We've been trying to work with the idea that farming as a land use is a welcome land use, but it has to be done in a way that um, is also open to um, other land uses, is also open to Indigenous people for um, exercising inherent and treaty rights. Um, and therefore, those things aren't necessarily at odds. Um, Obviously, lots of reform needs to happen to how farming is practiced. Um, but we're trying to start, I guess, from that point that um, that land back, I guess, in this context is more about um, sharing and developing overlapping access. Jurisdiction is something I think that's maybe a little bit more tricky because it involves, you need some involvement, at least from the state. And one of the things that, one of the reasons that the Treaty Land Sharing Network exists is because of our sort of pessimism with, um, you know, what the province has been up to, how they have um, been increasingly undermining um, Indigenous access to all sorts of crown, crown lands um, by selling them off to um, private, for private use. Um, I would say like on an academic standpoint, I understand what it means, um, but I would say it hasn't been at the forefront of how we've been doing our work um, or really how I think many of our members within the network and here I'm talking about landholders, um, how they understand what they're up to either. I think um, there's a reason why we landed on sharing in the title of the network. And that was um, in part, again, sort of to honor the true spirit and intent of the treaties, but also because that's a concept I think that um, kind of meets landholders potentially where they're at, but yet can still be pulled, you know, can still pull people along um, in increasingly like more um, deep commitment along the way as well. Um, I'll stop there. Thanks, Emily. Sarah, are you good to go with the next question? Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of pieces of that question were, have already been answered, but I think one, one, one component of it that I'm wondering if you, either of you or both of you um, might want to expand on or explore is um, when, especially in the in your experiences with the with the treaty land sharing network, may, what have some of those conversations? How have some of those conversations evolved around what you how you were speaking, Emily and Amy, both about the relationship between um, 
uh, access, um, sharing, and then and then like you know has concept have concepts like land back come up in the network and how have those been addressed? I think even Emily at the beginning when you were asking about you know those questions about like what does land back actually mean in practice? What um, have you in your experience sort of building the network and trying to actually implement the land sharing, the practice of land sharing itself, what, what components of this relationship, again, I don't know if we need to talk about it in terms of rematriation specifically, but like, do folks in the network see it as very much material, like material access, or are you having conversations about conceptualizing land differently, um, seeing it maybe a, from a spiritual perspective, a philosophical pers perspective, and so forth. Yeah, there's, I mean, a lot of the, the gatherings that we had, the events that we did have, um, where we gathered on land that somebody held title to, um, I feel like, yeah, it was a lot of, of course, you know, a lot of sharing, a lot of information sharing. Um, but I think when we, I guess more about what it means, right, to be a good treaty person, you know, what, what treaties really mean, what the rights and responsibilities are, um, what should have actually, what should, what, what a treaty person is, because a lot of people have this mis misinformation that it's only, you know, a First Nations person, an Indigenous person who comes from um, um, a community that negotiated treaties. But it's, you know, of course, those are those the foundational building blocks of Canada. And it's not treaties that make nations. It's nations that make treaties. And so we want people to understand that everybody has um, an identity as a treaty person who lives in Canada um, and what those roles and responsibilities are. So that's a lot of what I seen in the beginning was taking place. People just understanding that and also understanding um, the land, you know, understanding the native prairie that they that they are holding title to and what indigenous plants are there but then over time there's i've noticed over the year there's conversations coming up about that concept of land back right and those are coming up from indigenous people who are you know wanting to know how how we are looking at the network in a bigger picture right in kind of like what's the end goal in the longer term um and then you have settlers who hold title who are thinking about it maybe in a way of sort of being wary you know because that is where their their ancestry has you know is connected to that land too because of their homestead and their agriculture and so of course you know it's it's a difficult concept when you start talking about land back right because to some that could mean like physically i want my land back um but when we talk about what treaties meant, treaties meant to share the land. And so we would, as Indigenous people, I feel, would be breaching our treaty too if we came along and said, I, I want I want my land back. You can't, you can't make a livelihood here, you know, because that's just doing what was done to us and we'll never make things right that way. For me, I think what land back means is that concept of understanding that nobody owns the land. Um, we may hold title to it to make a living, but the land belongs um, to, to everyone, 
you know, it's, it's ours to share. The only thing that belongs to us, I guess, is the responsibilities to take care of it and maintain it for future generations. Um, and so I think for, you know, when we talk about land back, you know, there's, for example, the, um, there's a, a documentary that my office, the Office of the Treaty Commissioner had worked in supporting and it's called Reserve 107. And it's about the Chippewan band who was displaced um, near um, Osler, Saskatchewan. And so when they were talking about land back at that time, they didn't really necessarily want to claim back the entire town and the municipality around it. What they really wanted access to was their ceremony grounds, um, a place to them that was seen as where they would conduct their ceremony. So that's all they wanted access to. And so what took place is that the, the, fam the, the, the family that was you know, holding title to this land um, offered it back to the young Chippewan band to access for ceremonial purposes. And so they've had feast and such take place their pipe ceremony. Um, and so of course, you know, they're, it's I think not necessarily taking back, you know, I can't as somebody whose traditional territory is Saskatoon, but I live here, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't expect my community of beardies to want that back what i think they would want is that it to be fully recognized that this is treaty six territory territory of the nehiawak you know the and 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 the michif and being able to have that fully identified and have people have access to land and not have you know to be kept out of conversations where you know they were not consulted on the selling of crown land um, we're not consulted on resource extraction and those types of things, right? And because of those policies of the Indian Act, that's what makes it really difficult for us to, to have these conversations. I mean, we don't even, and when we talk about the TRC's calls to action, none of them address land. We're not even talking about, when we talk about reconciliation, nobody's even touching that, the topic of land. And because it's a difficult one that people aren't ready for, because on one side, they think, we physically want our land back. But what we really want is we want to be recognized that this is our um, a land that we are indigenous to, that since time immemorial, we have been taking care of this land and sustaining it. And we want people to respect that and recognize that. You know, I, I recently in August visited um, British Columbia and I was in and around the area of Vancouver and Abbotsford and Chilliwack. Kelowna, and I just thought, wow, you know, very different modern treaties than the numbered treaties. You know, you just, once you exited from the numbered treaty territory into the modern treaties, it was so apparent that this is indigenous territory. And it, it, everywhere I went, it, it was recognized and affirmed on signages. You know, um, even though Walmart had an emblem that recognized which nation it was in, those little things create a lot of change because then the people who are settlers in that territory, they say, hmm, you know, and they start to recognize and respect because they're a part of that community and that community is Indigenous territory. And, you know, we're still, we're still getting there here in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan, you know, but it's not about physically give us our land back. Let us have access to it. We don't own it. We want to share it with you. But let us have access to it 
don't deny that you know we we have um, you know a history to it and a connection to it um, you know and allow those rights that safe that safe space right you know allow us to hunt to gather you know allow us to practice our traditional ways and it's of course like I said it's difficult because we have that Indian Act we have those policies and although modern treaties don't fall, feel that they don't fall under those in that Indian Act that Indian Act is the biggest piece that depicts how Canadian society views Indigenous people. You know, we're seen as docile and inferior, um, but you know that when really it's, it's a nation of strength and, and wanting to share. And that's what the concept of land back is, is not, it's about sharing because one, one treaty partner is hanging on to it and they're making all the decisions. And when we look at, you know, climate change and, you know, everything that's happening, like treaties were to, to look for seven generations ahead. And right now it's looking pretty, it's looking pretty bleak for seven generations ahead. And that's what land back means is we want you to recognize that we let's work together and let's make um, a future that's bright and a future that's based on what those treaties were, you know? And so, um, yeah, that's just, I guess what I wanna share about that. Thank you. Thank you. Emily? Yeah, I would say on a practical level in terms of how it's working out with members of the network, I think people are at really different stages. Um, we've tried to ensure that um, the principles of the network are really clear, that we communicate those clearly, that people kind of sign on to those principles. And they include things like, um, a recognition that Indigenous people have both inherent and treaty rights to hunt, trap, fish, gather, practice ceremony, um, and their ways of life on all of the lands throughout um, throughout treaty territories. So we try to be very explicit about what those principles are um, and ensure that we don't have members of the network who don't have some sort of fundamental basis of unity. But I think when we get to these questions about um, land back um, beyond just offering access um, for specific uses, then I think you have um, like a wide variety of levels that people are at in terms of, um, you know, uh, people have grown up in a system of private property and it's been fundamental to their identities as well. Um, and so the idea that, um, for example, that, um, that people could access uh, land that a landholder might understand as their own uh, and their property um, without, for example, phoning in advance or, um, uh, that the landholder wouldn't be able to sort of vet who comes on and who doesn't. Those I think are, I think all of our part, all of our landholders end up there and it takes a lot of um, conversations to really spell out like why we are working at reducing barriers, um, what it means to be a landholder, all of those things, but they are, it takes a long time um, for people to get, um, yeah, to get, to really 
move towards um, relinquishing some of the things associated with private property. And one thing we've been talking about in the organizing committee more so than with the landholders so far is um, we've been in our literature and in our education, we've been focusing mostly on inherent and treaty um, rights. And we want to also start to discuss more um, responsibilities as well. And so the idea that um, Indigenous people have also responsibilities to the land and that means having some or having equal input um, into maybe a more western term like management um, of lands what does that look like on private so-called private um, landholders land if we're recognizing now that um, indigenous people as a sort of amy saying i think have um have always been taken uh, care, caretakers of these lands and have a right to take care of um, continuing into the future. So that sort of like next step of not just accessing, but really making decisions about um, exercising responsibility over um, the, the human non-human relationship, I think is like another frontier that's a bad term here, um, but another step that um, we're kind of thinking about how to conceptualize and how to um, start more education about that. But these are not, you know, you can, yeah, these are not easy conversations in a society that, in a settler society that is revolved so strongly and especially on the prairies so strongly around private property and where the trajectory is going the other way where trespassing legis new trespassing legislation is sort of emboldening property owners to put up signs all over suggesting you know no trespassing no one's welcome so um it's really it's really hard to get at these more complex um notions of like exactly what Amy's saying, right? Indigenous people aren't saying physically give all of this land back necessarily. Although, you know, there are also um, calls for that type of land back as well. Um, but um, sharing means more than just opening up your, um, your lands to Indigenous use. It, sharing in the true spirit of and intent of the treaty has to be about, you know, uh, managing and doing, having that relationship um, together and in ways that are sort of mutual, right? That's actually a really good segue into the next question, which is about protocols and practices. Um, so like, how do we organize or in your experience, how um, what's important to think about and consider when we're talking about organizing the return of or access to um, Indigenous lands for Indigenous peoples. And so, yeah, I wanted to hear what you think about and, and maybe the protocols and practices you're learning about and drawing on in the Treaty Land Sharing Network. And if you wanted to comment on sort of how these are specifically important for 
um, feminist uh, or matriarchal commitments, as well as um, commitments related to, um, you, you know, decolonizing and and sort of dealing with, um, you know, uh, ra racism, ra racial relations, um, and uh, yeah, overall anti-colonial commitments. I guess in terms of, you know, protocol and procedure um, with, you know, you know, land back and, and rematriation, um, I guess I'll use, for example, um, a community um, in the town, well, the town of Devon in Alberta, which had reached out to the Office of the Treaty Commissioner, um, just for support on creating sort of an information package for staff of the town just to understand about treaties and indigenous treaty partners. And so we had worked with them to create just, you know, this sort of info package they would give out like an orientation. Um, but then through that conversation, you know, got into more about, you know, that, well, recognizing that the town of Devon sits on Treaty 6 territory, that there's um, communities, indigenous communities nearby, and they hold, you know, that this is their inherent territory, that they, you know, hold that that stewardship to the land. And so what took place is that they started to reach out to those those indigenous nations because they asked us like, what should we do? And that's exactly what we advised, you know, the protocol and procedure for understanding, you know, how to, to work with indigenous people is by looking to the communities around you, um, connecting with the leadership there and connecting with knowledge keepers and elders. You know, that's always just a start is just to have that conversation because you know we the changes that we want to see in terms of land is something that happens at the grassroots level um because like i said nobody's talking about land back at you know at a federal level in terms of reconciliation right but it's people at it's it's everyday people who are the ones bringing it to the forefront right and i think the protocol and procedure is to to engage for there to be conversations happening um, you know, when, within Saskatchewan, there's 11 reconciliation committees, and they are in Saskatoon and North Battleford, Prince Albert, Yorkton, Nipawin, and what they do is it's um, bringing together, you know, the the game changers in those communities. So people that are involved um, in different levels of government, and you know, the policing. You know the ministries, the health authority, the education, um, and bringing them in with indigenous people from the communities around to start to have conversations about what reconciliation looks like. And I think that's what individuals need to start having because that's what the town of Devon did with these communities. It started to ask them. You know, we obviously can't give you back the town of Devon, but what what can you have access to? Well, and it's of course teaching the people in the town of Devon and the people in the municipality um, about what treaties are. So that sort of the same thing that with the Treaty Land Sharing Network is doing, it's you know, allow, uh, is guiding people through the process of, of understanding why they should be sharing their land with indigenous people. And I think that's what I would recommend is that people stop, um, stop acting like we can't get together and know each other, right? You know, the biggest part of reconciliation is a very simple, simple act of, you know, of course, because COVID, we can't always shake hands, but it's like just extending your hand to somebody and saying hello. And because so many um, treaty partners historically never had that opportunity because of 
policies and acts like the Indian Act that make it seem like that's not okay. Um, there was a lot of conversations that didn't happen. And I think that the, when we talk about protocol and procedure, it doesn't have to be something that's, you know, ceremonial. Um, it has, it can be something as simple as a conversation between, you know, one community and the other and talking about the history of that community. Um, I think is the kind of the best way I could answer that right now. Um, and just because it is still, it is still a new concept. And of course we have so many different levels of learning. Um, you know, like we mentioned, just with even within our network, right? There's so many levels of learning. And so we're still trying to navigate how you, how we process that, how we, how we execute the, the non-physical land back, but the idea that, yeah, you know, there should be full access. Um, and I think that how we get to that is just by being good treaty partners to each other, you know, extending and learning. Um, I think, you know, these reconciliation circles that we have in the province of Saskatchewan should be something that's happening in all major cities in our country and happening within, you know, all towns, that there is some sort of a committee that gets together and works with that community and the Indigenous communities, because that's the only way we're going to start to see the idea of helping, of having people, of in, having Indigenous people have access to the land and having, you know, that the rematriation really take place is by those education. It's all through education and awareness, right? And, and just having conversations and listening to people's stories and their histories. So I wanted to, um, so because of time considerations, we're wanting to um, maybe combine a few questions. So I'm gonna um, ask you, um, Amy, about the question seven we listed here. Um, so, the, so we wanted to know um, what kinds of actions you're taking to build or expand your relationships to land. So this to me relates to the question about protocols and practices because I think it has to do also with the, pro the, the question that you were talking about there about like the learning and the resources, the sharing resources to really um, help people get involved and um, have more discussions that would lead to um, um, further action around decolonization and rematriation. Well, um, I guess like in my, in my daytime job, my role as the Director of Public Education with the Office of the Treaty Commissioner, um, that's kind of what I've always been doing, you know, for, for years prior to my involvement with the Treaty Land Sharing Network is informing, right? Informing and educating. Um, but then once, once I got connected, oh, sorry, once I got connected with the Treaty Land Sharing Network, um, then it really became apparent to me that, that, well, like I said, land wasn't being discussed, right? Land's not being discussed. It's not, um, it's not, when we talk about reconciliation, we, we're not really hearing land ever being discussed. And that I was sort of surprised that I didn't notice that before. And so what the focus then became on, what the focus then came on was, okay, so how do we start to incorporate, you know, what, what land means to Indigenous people within our information sessions um, and kind of being able to open up more opportunities um, for land-based learning and so um, 
what 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 we have done is just yeah allowing that information right like hosting virtual information sessions um not only for members of the treaty learning uh, treaty land sharing network but the general public to just kind of understand um you know who the treaty land sharing network is um we had one that a session that was understanding what traditional plants are you know indigenous plant plants um, medicines um you know understanding what land does mean to indigenous people that it is you know it's it's the basis of our our, our language you know and our culture our songs our ceremonies um so we've been kind of focusing on just the information about the importance of land, um, the importance of land and treaties, what that really meant. Um, because we can't really, we can't, you know, meet in person and do any actual land-based learning, but it's sort of just starting to create conversations about the importance of land and what land and reconciliation means, um, which is basically just that sharing. It's always, for me, goes back to, you know, the, the rematriation would be having treaty implemented the way it was meant to be. Um, because that's what prior to the Indian Act coming into place in 1876, when the number of treaties were just starting to be developed and negotiated, um, women were, you know, they were, they were the ones that were consulting and making those decisions, you know, and then they would come back and negotiate with the British Crown. But it was always women who were making those decisions in those grandmother societies, right? And so what what was to be honored in treaty was that we were to maintain our ways as they had been prior, you know, um, and that we would still have that full access to the land and to be able to have our livelihoods. But then of course we know that didn't take place and so that was our treaties were breached and so what i see is that rematriation is treaty implementation because women did take care of the land you know women held the ceremonies for you know the plants and the medicines um and women were the ones that took care of the game when they brought it back like women were connected to the land at the levels of providing for the community um in in terms of you know food and health um so for me you know that's what it means is treaty implementation because we nothing was supposed to be disrupted that's what the treaties were about was to protect and honor you know and things were going to stay as they were as long as the sun shines the grass grows and the rivers flow but that didn't take that in fact didn't happen because of that breach of treaty so i think that by talking about giving land back by talking about rematriation and allowing women to step into that role that they've been denied you know that's where we're, we're starting to implement treaty you know i see um you know when we talk about reconciliation i see that as what's carrying us to you know to rematriation to full treaty implementation if that makes sense I mean, I think reconciliation is how we get there. You know, it's it's what's carrying us to the end goal, which is treaty implementation. And that's the rematriation, you know, the woman asserting what, what was rightfully theirs. Um, and I think I'm losing my train of thought there, but I hope that answered that. <laughs> it's getting close to the end of the day and, and, and it's Friday. So I think my, 
my brain capacity is wearing out for the week. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, maybe we can, um, maybe Emily, um, you want to say um, uh, some of your thoughts here around the protocols and practices. And, um, and also, if you wanted to expand a little bit more on the on this question seven about um, you know, the, the kinds of ways you're building community around this um, to expand this, uh, this commitment to rematriation, decolonizing, or land sharing as you see it. I'll try to be brief. <laughs> I think when we started this work um, more than three years ago, this was before Amy had joined us, we had this idea that like, we'll find, you know, a few landholders who um, want to share their land, we will make some sort of spreadsheet or something, and we'll deliver it to <laughs> band offices. And without too much effort, all of a sudden, people will be accessing and sharing land. Um, and that turned out to be <laughs> wildly <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> off base. And so I think what like Amy has talked a lot about building relationships. And one thing that was really important for us um, was that at, on one hand, we don't want individual people accessing lands to feel like they need to stop for coffee with the landholder or educate the landholder about their culture or their harvesting practices or um, that they need to be friends or any of that, right? So on, the, on one hand, in some ways we're trying to, on one hand, like uh, that can be experienced, I think, as a barrier, right? On the other hand, so we were sort of working on that premise that, you know, there wouldn't need to be a relationship in order to access lands. But on the other hand, every time we were talking to um, Indigenous people and communities and um, elders and uh, various different, at various different events, everybody said, you know, the relationship is really important. We can't trust, for example, because of so many things. Um, these rural spaces are not safe for Indigenous people. Um, we can't trust that we are welcome and protected here, um, that we need to build this relationship. We need to understand who this organization is and that you come in the right way and all of those things. So we've been trying, I think, to build the relationship sort of more through the network and through the network spaces and less in understanding that at an individual level. So trying to still keep the barrier low and the expectation around access as being like, you don't have to, it's nice if you want to say hi or whatever, but landholders, you can't expect anything either, right? Um, but on the other hand, as landholders, you have an obligation to deepen your understanding of treaties and of your responsibilities in treaty. And that means, you know, also attending and um, educational events and, and building relationships between landholder and Indigenous communities through the network space rather than through land access, I guess. Um, so that's like one sort of protocol. 
uh, I guess that we've been <laughs> working on. Um, and then the last question about, um, can you reiterate what it was? Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think I think that what you're saying actually relates a lot to this question. And um, so it was about the kinds of actions you're taking to build or expand relationships. So the, I think that, you know, ties into what you're saying there about protocols. If you wanted to expand a little bit more on like, like some of the ways or resources that you're providing folks, but it sounds like that you covered it there with the that question about the, the network um, spaces being that sort of um, sort of main avenue in which people are, are engaging. So, but feel free to add anything there. Oh, just we're doing all sorts of things, including like um, engaging with um, faith communities, um, trying to talk about, um, you know, talk with, for example, um, members of Kairos um, about, you know, uh, this is hard for me to talk about because I, I was brought up in a family of atheists, so I don't even have the right language, but, you know, the spiritual connection to land, right? Um, that many Christians and other religions also um, hold um, deeply and closely um, and try to talk about, you know, how that also relates to um, Indigenous relationships with land and spirituality all of that so like trying to I guess reach out in a number of different on a number of different um, axes I guess um, and so we've held a few or we've held one I guess joint event with Kairos we're holding another one coming up where we're reading um, the this book actually uh, Treaty Elders of Saskatchewan um, and it has uh, a lot of the oral history of um, the treaties in Saskatchewan. So again, I think our focus has been like really, um, as Amy has said, going back to the true spirit intent of the treaty, which we think lays out a sort of framework um, under which we can have a good relationship with each other in the land. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to uh, ask a little bit about um, both the responsibility of, of settlers, maybe both within the network, but also like the members, the, the landholders. So, um, you know, what responsibilities settlers have in, in the work that you're doing or obligations. Um, and then also maybe what some of your concerns are in the ways in which settler, like colonial institutions might take this up, right? We're seeing all the ways in which colonial governments and bureaucracies take, a, take up and, and seek to implement a lot of, um, a lot of uh, uh, Indigenous calls to action or ways of knowing or, um, um, arguments for around land back and, and in, in what can be often um, problematic ways. So I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit more about any of those concerns or questions you're having um, in the network. Um, I'm not too sure if I can answer that question. Um, and I think just because in terms of the network, like I have, I have been away 
and not as involved in the network as I have been since the summer because I did go on a six uh, week medical leave. And then I've been back at work for about a month now and it's been really hectic because I'm doing like six weeks of catch up. So I haven't had really a chance to know, like um, connect back with the network, um, see the progress and the status of what things are at. Um, so I think I will let Emily answer that one first and maybe as she's speaking that might kind of trigger um, me to have a response to that. If that's okay, Emily, if you don't mind going first, Sure. So there's some common things that I think that we um, are trying to work through that are reoccurring um, things. <laughs> so um, one is around hunting specifically. Um, and I think from the very beginning, there's been um, a reluctancy among many landholders to welcome hunting as a land use. And, you know, we've had, we've had many many conversations about this and and you know it, sometimes the reasons are well founded in the sense of like maybe somebody has um you know a theater company also on their land and they have all sorts of people visiting all the time and it's just not a safe land use while those things are happening um so i think sometimes there's some um, legitimate concerns there, but there's also, I think, this we've encountered, you know, from sort of conservation communities, this idea, um, I guess, a lack of understanding around um, how hunting can be done in ways that are consistent with conservation. Um, and so fears around over harvesting. Um, also, people that just have. Um, you know, visceral re reactions to having sort of weapons or dangerous, um, uh, yeah, implements on their land. So there's that. Some people, I think, um, and we've been really trying to say, you know, this is an inherent uh, right and a right guaranteed in treaty. This isn't a grab bag of you choose to welcome this and not that. If they're all rights, and you recognize them as rights, as one of the fundamental principles of the network, then we have to welcome all of these um, land uses. But um, we have, again, had to make provisions for, for example, for people who have other things happening on their land that just preclude that being safe. So we really want to ensure also that the that there's that it's a safe experience for everybody as well. So that's like been something that has been um, a really thorny issue from the very beginning. And um, it's still always, it just always comes back up. Um, and then. Uh, do you want me to re do you want me to restate the question about yes. <laughs> it was just about any concerns you might have about the ways that colonial bureaucratic governments might take right. take up some of the work that you're doing, um, take up the work of, you know, we've seen this over again with, with lots of different um, issues around reconciliation and decolonization. So I'm just wondering if you're seeing any concerns, red flags being raised for you around land back, rematriation, land sharing, or the network. I would say that in Saskatchewan, the bureaucracies are not taking this up at all. Um, they're not even trying to pretend that <laughs> uh, 
um, that they're interested in the conversation <laughs> or that it's happening. Although we have had government funding um, and interestingly, SAS culture um, is writing a story on us. Like they gave us some money and now they wanna profile us in their, in their little newsletter or something. So that'll be interesting to see how that happens. But I would say the major problem here has actually been just a lack of um, engagement or recognition that it's even happening. Um, and so one thing we organized was around um, an, a letter, an open letter to the government around halting the sales of crown lands. And we really articulated it. We wanted to have um, farming organizations, conservation organizations, and indigenous organizations as the sort of three main groups putting together, putting forward this open letter. And um, uh, the government, you know, we really framed it, sorry, in a way that, that um, really foregrounded that this would, that selling crown lands is a sort of abrogation of treaty and it forecloses like a proper treaty relationship. And that was significant, I think, for a lot of the conservation organizations who for a long time have been like, um, uh, very vocal about opposing the sale of crown lands, but they hadn't been articulating it in that way. So we felt really proud that we got all of these groups together um, and really foregrounding um, treaties and the possibility of treaty implementation. And we sent it to the government and found felt that it was a very powerful um, statement. And their response was showed that they really did not even understand what it was that we were talking about. You know, they talked about, well, you know that we have consultation processes and we're bound to consult on matters that um, affect Indigenous people. And we've always, every, every time we've tried to sell something that affects Indigenous people, we've consulted them. <laughs> so a real lack of understanding even in like, um, just the most basic understanding of whose territories these are. Um, and they talked about, well, we have treaty land in, um, entitlement process, which is, you know, we were talking about treaties, not um, the treaty land entitlement process. So they're just on a totally different page than we are. Like, there's no, there's no common ground there. There's no common understanding. And I think at that moment, for me, it was really apparent that, like, yeah, what we're trying to do here and the, the understanding we're trying to advance here is just so far outside of um, the bureaucracy's understanding that there's almost zero conversation, like there's zero overlap. Thank you. Thank I, I, I um, really appreciate some of that, some of that insight, especially um, in the context of, of the prairies. And um, I mean, in some ways, it's really similar to Ontario, but in, in some ways, it's a little different. Um, I, I realize time is, is a thing, but um, one final question. I'm just wondering if either, either of you, both of you, if you want to address it before we, before we sign off, is just about this relationship between the work that you're doing and any and and work around food sovereignty, um, if you're if what kind of links you're making around that, um, how you might be seeing it show up in the network, or or if food sovereignty is 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 an important concept to you in the network at all, um, or not, um, you can be as brief as possible, um, but and then we can close it close it out from there. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I know we're we're still in you know our infant stages of the network, right? But 
I mean, looking at the idea of food sovereignty, I think that also ties into the ongoing issue that Emily mentioned that we always have with hunting, right? Um, you know, having access to be able to hunt is food sovereignty for a lot of indigenous people in these territories. Um, you know, and and particularly in our province, right? You know, because we don't have that that support from the government, we don't have that here in Saskatchewan. So it makes it really difficult to um, be able to move things like this forward where we're trying to help people to understand treaties and, and their identity as a treaty person and those roles and responsibilities that they have associated with that towards their other, towards their fellow treaty partners. And so um, I think that it's really important that at some point that we can get to a place where we can allow um, and come to a common understanding of how we, we, we can allow Indigenous people to have that access to hunt um, because we're already allowing them access for the gathering purposes and the ceremonial purposes. And, um, you know, a lot of what, you know, Indigenous people ate was like a paleo diet. So you're eating a lot of roots and berries and a lot of red meat. And so I think that the biggest part of for food sovereignty in these territories for Indigenous people in the territories that we predominantly offer our services to, um, it's the hunting. That's the biggest issue and that's the food sovereignty. Um, and so when we can come to an idea of how that's going to work out, the only way we'll ever be able to um, get to, you know, um, an end result that is actually food sovereignty is by having that support, like Emily said, of the bureaucracy and we don't. And I mean, of course, that's not doesn't mean that we're not going to stop, you know, doing what we do and that we're not going to keep on um, finding ways to come and knock on their door and tell them, hey, like we're here, this is what we're doing. And I think, you know, as long as the people are still engaged and wanting to be involved, that's important. Because there, I think we can't really keep up I, as far as what I've heard from Valerie, we can't really keep up with a lot of the, the people reaching out and, you know, saying, what are you guys doing? This is great. How do we do this? Because there's other other provinces who are asking us to come in and support them, right? Um, which is really difficult because we don't even have the support of our own government here, right? But then it's also, you know, do we need that? Because if we have support of indigenous nations, they are their own sovereign nations, and that's the support that we need. We're, you know, and we're we're working to honor that treaty together. I think that, um, you know, that it's something that we definitely is an ongoing conversation for us and something we'll continue to keep working towards. Um, as Emily said, it's it's always an issue that comes up a lot is the hunting, right? And that is for us in these territories, that's our food sovereignty. Um, so yeah, that's about all I can add on that. Thank you, Amy. Um, did you have any final words to add, Emily? Not really, I think you did a good job, Amy. And did either of you want to add any sort of anything that that might have been missing from this conversation or any final words that you want to sort of let folks know before we before we sign off? Hmm. I better, not, also don't I better not get started. We'll be here till after <laughs> <four>. <laughs> Well, no, we really... I think we've said enough. Yeah. 
Well, we really appreciate this. I, I, um, it was really great to hear about your work and hear, hear the, um, just your experiences, stories. Um, I really appreciate you both taking the time to do this with us. It's been lovely. Well, you, you did great, Emily. I was glad that you made it. It's nice <laughs> to see you also. I haven't seen any of the network since we had our launch um, on July 15th. We had our official launch and erected the first signage. Um, we had a pipe ceremony and we shared in a lunch together. And it was, it was really beautiful because um, to me, what I seen um, settlers and indigenous people sitting together and having a pipe ceremony, that's what took place when Treaty 6 was signed. You know, there was, you know, the British Crown's representatives, there was settlers who were occupying those territories, um, there was indigenous people, and they came together and they had a ceremony because they wanted to share the land. And that's what we did that day. And that was, that to me just gave me hope. Just the fact that just that collective of people shared in that, you know, that's, it's powerful. We shared in a ceremony together and we prayed together so that we could be able to have safe access to land for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that's, it's, it's really great to be a part of the network. Um, it's great to see that it was started by people who weren't indigenous to these territories, that they took it upon themselves to start this work and then started reaching out to indigenous people. Um, and I'm just really thankful for your research group to reach out to us. And we, we need more exposure because we want to have more support at those government levels, right? So that we can do um, the things that we want to do, which is that full treaty implementation. So thank you so much for inviting myself and Emily. Yes, thank you. It was uh, nice to meet you all. Yeah, it was so nice to meet you. And um, we're learning from you. We're learning from each other. So this, these kind of spaces are so important. And I really appreciate the deep history, the knowledge of history that both of you bring and, and your insight and vision. So um i hope we get to to hang out again soon either online or maybe sometime in person who knows what's going to happen right so i really want to thank emily and amy for taking the time to speak with us about their important work i also want to thank my fellow collaborators and friends lauren kepkowitz danielle boissonneau adrian lickers xavier ayla fenton and taryn giacomini and thank you to all of our research assistants Stephanie Morningstar, Sonia Hill, Jessica Ross, and thanks to Jaron Richard for all your wonderful tech support. We also want to thank the National Farmers Union Indigenous Solidarity Working Group for their ongoing collaboration and support, as well as financial support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Okay, that's all for this episode, and thanks for listening.